Radio, and this is Darkling number 39. And this time around, uh, we are joined by Simon Berman. So, um, I'm Chris, one of your regular hosts, and I'm joined by David from our spin off show Network Zero. Uh, hi, David. Hello. Hi. And hello, Simon. Hello. How's it going, guys? It's good. Yes. Um, so, uh, Basically, for this podcast, we're going to be covering uh, the fact that Simon has a new um, publishing company, publishing uh, uh, venture, uh, yep. com- which you started recently, um, because lots of things have been going on for you. Um, and we'll be covering uh, the latest Kickstarter, which um, which you are running. Um, so, uh, yeah, Simon, how are you doing? Um, it's a lot's changed for you recently. It, uh, it has been a wild couple of months and a wilder uh, few weeks this uh, this past month or so, but uh, I'm good, yeah. It's uh, it's good to be back on the show. It's been a couple of years, I think, since I've spoken on here. I think last time you were on, we did a dark thing about Iron Kingdoms, because yeah. Iron Kingdoms had just come out, um, which uh, is, as an RPG, I cannot fault. I've run more than enough of it. Uh, I need to run more. <laughs> <laughs> and I've in, I've introed other people to it at my local gaming club, um, and uh, yeah, it's brilliant. Um, so you recently finished your stint at Privateer Press because you um you finished with um, as Lock and Load had its most recent event, the most recent Lock and Load. Uh, that was about a month or two ago, was it? Uh, about a month ago, yeah, a yeah. little less than. And that was quite a big event um, to to be involved in because that also coincided with the release of um, the new editions of War Machine and Hordes. Um, yeah. And of course, you, that means you've now you were um, was it social social marketing manager for yeah. Privateer Press for uh, for quite a while. Yeah, I'd been at Privateer since uh, 2008, so I've actually I had been there uh, across all three editions. I, I came on there just as we were starting up uh, production on War Machine Mark II. And uh, my last day was the pre-release of the new editions, the, essentially the third edition. So, uh, yeah, I've been there quite a while. <laughs> and if I'm right, that means as social marketing manager, you've also been in charge of like managing the, um, the, the I guess it was the first Kickstarter that Private Press did, which is Widower's Woods. Uh, that was that actually right? the second. Uh, we oh, did was... um, War Machine Tactics in oh, 2014. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I, I know there was that one, but I think I, I was considering that that one wasn't quite. I would say that was kind of quite a, a non-standard one in some respects because it was it was um, it's not the it was a, a joint venture in some respects because it's with uh, White Moon. Is it White, White Moon, Moon Dreams? White Moon Dreams, yeah. Yeah, um, we uh, we kind of oversaw the the Kickstarter and uh, a lot of the basically the, the campaign elements, but uh, yeah, White Moon Dreams is our partner to actually produce the video game. Yeah, and that's that's going strong as well. I just noticed they um they've uh, added Alexia and the yeah. Risen to to uh to the game, and it's like shit. I need to uh, I need to get back in and um I need to back, go back in and try that out at some point soon. Um, yeah, I've I've been so busy. I haven't seen the new content, but I hear it's fun. I I don't know if it's the the if I update it, it's mostly more. Hopefully, it's maybe even better optimized than what it was before. Um, yeah, I think David, they did a you... lot of optimization. David, have you played any of War Machine Tactics? I haven't. Um, I was really it's... tempted by it, but I have a, a very long uh, digital queue of games that I've uh, bought and have yet to start, so I'm, I'm trying to be slightly disciplined. It's not really working, but um, at least I have good intentions. Yeah. Okay. It's a good... It's an interesting um, port of War Machine Hordes 2. Again, it it works. It, it gives you the right feel. You just don't have that on mass feel because you don't have huge units of troops. But in general, it's the kind of the same feel. Has it got but a similar the... style to uh, X, the XCOM games? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I love. And I think why it's interesting to bring up that game, as I said, the Widower's Woods, um, which is the Hordes kind of flavored version of Undercity. And 
is because I guess then Simon for you that those were like a two rather large kickstarters you've been involved in and in some way have helped inform you in how to run further kickstarters for uh, the previous one you did which is uh, Problem Glyphs was that right? Uh, that's actually the the um, second one I ran for personal stuff I actually I launched um, my first personal kickstarter last fall for uh, the Book of Starry Wisdom which is a uh, collection of Lovecraft stories dealing specifically with uh, the Cthulhu, with Cthulhu uh, illustrated by uh, artist Valerie Herron. Um, ah, yeah. I commissioned some essays that sort of gently break the fourth wall around the, the stories uh, from a few horror authors and noted game developers. Um, you might know uh, Adam Scott Glancy from Delta Green. Okay. Yes. Yeah, he, he wrote a really excellent essay for that. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I, I launched that last fall and that did uh, very, very well. Um, in fact, we are at press right now, and I should have the books in my hands and going to backers in just a couple of weeks. Ah, right, okay, cool. Is and that going to go to retail? Uh, it will be. Um, it'll certainly be available online. I don't know uh, what kind of distribution I'll be doing with it. Probably pretty limited, but um, it'll be it'll be available for sale. It's actually up for, you can get it for pre-order through, uh, I think, the 26th of this month uh, through Backerkit. Great, okay. Brilliant. Um, we'll have to get the link for that and... Yeah, I'll send it to you. Um, all the information and, and get that into the show notes. Um, and then, of course, you've got the latest Kickstarter, which is with um, with Jason Souls with the um, with Apocrypha. Uh, Apocrypha. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing that right. Um, which is a uh, a collation of um, of his work, of his sculpting work, and I guess some of there's also going to be sketches and some of the artwork that leads into how he formulates these um, pieces? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of a traditional um, photo art book. Um, it collects uh, photo, uh, professional photographs of uh, his sculptures over the last 15 or so years um, and are accompanied by design notes or process notes. Um, in some cases, you know, we have uh, photographs of, of you know, his casting processes and, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, it, it's certainly, it's primarily there to showcase uh, his really impressive and beautiful sculptures, but... Um, yeah, there's also a lot to learn there. The, the, the bronze casting section, uh, which we've, uh, which he has written, um, is probably a pretty good primer for somebody who's looking to get into lost wax bronze casting. Oh wow! Okay, great. Uh, I know I, this thing. I was like, if that's the type of information in there, it's like it sounds like definitely the book I need to get. It's just one of the books I can't. I, I have to admit, right now, I really can't, I've got to put money aside for conferences and so forth. I, I understand. Like, it's not to slap down money, but if it, if that's also going to be on some sort of limited. Um, Distribution, then I have to definitely pick it up as a um, a hard copy book. Yeah, I mean, should, I think, if we meet our funding goal, hopefully we'll uh, we'll see it in some some online stores. Yeah, and I think that leads us into the first main question I've got down, which is kind of like how at which point or when did you know that Strix Publishing, which is is this um is obviously the name of your your company for publishing these books, when did you feel that? it had to be a thing, or when did you know that was what you wanted to do? <clears throat> um, I had been, uh, like I said, I, I launched the Kickstarter for the Book of Starry Wisdom last October, um, and that had been an idea that I had been kicking around for a couple of years, and finally I was able to put the, uh, the right team behind it. I found uh, Valerie Heron, who's a very talented artist. She's also uh, currently the uh, one of the two social media coordinators at Privateer Press. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd met her as an illustrator prior, um, and uh, that kickstarted very well, but I sort of planned, you know, maybe I'd do like one book a year or something like that, and because um, you know it's, it's a lot of work and it's it's uh, difficult to manage a Kickstarter full time when you also have a day job. Um, but you know that ended in early November, and uh, in the coming months after that, I ended up sort of uh, a few other projects that were interesting kind of dropped into my lap, um, where I was approached. Uh, you know, the, the the most recent Kickstarter, which we just completed about uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Uh, was for Eliza Gager's Problem Glyphs, which is a uh, very well-known um, artistic occult project on the internet. Um, and Eliza's a good friend of mine, and you know she and I have been sort of collaborating on a comic book for a few years that hasn't quite come around yet, but hopefully we'll see that soon. Um, but I've been helping her manage the business end of Problem Glyphs for some time, and uh, we've been talking about, you know, it would be cool to do an art book. Um, we knew our audience was was interested in that, you know, her, her audience... Um, yeah, the, the project is entirely for free online. You can go to problemglyphs.org and uh, people anonymously submit their deepest, darkest secrets to Eliza and then uh, she draws on her background in fine art and the occult and mythology and history and she produces these glyphs uh, with titles that are... It's all published for free. Um, she's supported by a Patreon, but the project is entirely web-published. Um, but 
she thought it would be cool to have a collection of, uh, you know, a physical collection of the books. We, you know, we, we were actually able to um, secure a forward by uh, Warren Ellis, who is a, a well-known comic books writer from, you may know him from Transmetropolitan. He's doing some great work right yeah. now on a series called Trees. Um, very prolific writer, yeah. Very, very smart, very cool person. Um, but he was kind enough to write as a forward because he's been a longtime supporter of the project as well. Um, so with that and... Then Jason wanted to do an art book, um, which is, of course, the current project, Apocrypha. Um, and then I was already thinking about doing another another Lovecraft project. And then another author I know, uh, Oren Gray, who may be familiar to uh, Iron Kingdoms fans because he's written for Skull Island Expeditions and he's done a little bit of uh, writing more recently for the uh, Iron Kingdoms Full, Full Metal Fantasy role-playing game. Um, he approached me with uh, his first an- uh, fiction anthology, or collection, I should say, uh, Never Bet the Devil, had fallen out of print uh, last last fall, um, just as some of his new stuff was coming out, and he, he realized that there was some interest in getting that book back into print. So uh, that's actually the next Kickstarter I'll be doing in August will be uh, a, a deluxe edition of uh, Never Bet the Devil with some new new stories, and it'll be fully illustrated. We have some cool stuff going on with that with an artist called uh, Mike, named, named Mike Corley, uh, very talented. I'm waiting to see uh, the cover thumbnails right now. Uh, but yeah, all these projects kind of kind of just piled up, and I realized that if I wanted to do them, uh, it would be very difficult to do that with a full-time job. So uh, I actually gave my notice at Privateer back in the spring, um, so I wanted to make sure uh, that the transition out of there was, was smooth for everybody involved, and, you know, I, I uh, uh, Privateer's been very good to me over the years, and I'm still pleased to say I left on good terms with everybody there, you know, Matt Wilson, um, Sherry Yuri, uh, Ed Burrell, everybody, there's, there's, Privateer's just a great place, and uh, I, I actually still miss it, but, um, it was uh, sort of necessary for us to, to part ways at this time and uh, me to be able to focus on uh, these publishing projects. Hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's interesting when you bring up quite the list of names, which it's Privacy Press, is a, it, there's a lot of people that are working, obviously, on what Privacy Press does well, but then they all have their 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 own little side projects, and it seems for some of these you've, you've become kind of a nexus for making some of these things real because you're now outside of it but still in some respects part of the family in yeah in now in, 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 in a distant way because you're not you're not in you, you you're not in the melting pot constantly you're, you're outside and able to um take their ideas and 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 make them real for them like a, you know whichever books or or um or or kind of get them to uh, do some art you know, on their own time, that can go into another book. And that's pr- that's pretty cool. I mean, and talking about the most recent Kickstarter, we've got, as I say, you've got Jason's um, sculpting, and it's it's interesting because looking and just reading a few of the things he said, like the, there's that one piece which is kind of like was an idea based upon that was meant to be representative of like a a thrall. Was it a, a um a, was it a scarlet? Necromancer skull, yeah, yeah, and then of course there's some of the sculpt sculpting work that he's done. That um, the one that comes most to mind is it are the pieces which form the covers of Unhallowed Metropolis and Unhallowed Necropolis. So that's actually a different artist. Uh, is that's that a different the, artist? I thought they were yeah. the same one. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, although I, I should say uh, that's that the uh, Unhallowed Metropolis and Necropolis. Uh, cover sculptures are by an, uh, an artist named George Hyam, who is a very oh, talented. Okay. But George actually wrote the foreword for Jason's book. So oh, he's, right. Well, there is a connection there. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. All right. So so how long has, has Jason been sculpting? Because I guess most people will know him, obviously, as lead developer for, for Warm Machine Hordes. But how yeah, long has and, he been uh, sculpting on the side? Yeah. So how long has he been sculpting on the side, then? Uh, Jason's been working as a sculptor for about 15 years now. He's actually entirely self-taught. Um, the Necromancer skull, which you can see uh, on the Kickstarter page, which is, uh, I think it's the uh, second or third image down, uh, it's, it's a skull on, a, on sort of a, a mount um, yeah. with, uh, with uh, thrall runes carved into it. Uh, Jason, actually, that's a very early piece of his um, from when, uh, probably around 2000. To 2003, and uh, there's actually an illustration in, I, I want to say it's the Iron Kingdom's uh, World Guide, the, uh, the, the D&D edition, yeah. uh, that actually uses that as its model. Um, but uh, yeah, he's, he's been doing about 15 years. Um, the last few years, he uh, he's moved into Lost Wax Bronze Sculpting, which is sort of uh, a very advanced uh, sculpting um, technique 
uh, and you know, the as he's become more serious about it, you know, he's he's moved into these these more um, complex uh, uh, artistic expressions. Um, so I mean, as cool as this, the thrall skull is, that's actually a very early piece. Um, I think you can see a little bit above it is his his watcher in bronze, which uh, is uh, I had the the uh, pleasure of. of Carrying one of those around at his studio the other night, and you you could you could murder the living hell out of somebody with that thing. <laughs> it, it must weigh thirty pounds. So the the um the lost wax um casting is that so because you've seen how that process works. Um, do you want to just explain how that works then? Um, I can do my best. Obviously, I, I'm yeah, just sure, yeah. But uh, uh, essentially, you know, he 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 makes his sculpture typically in. Uh, I think he likes to use um. A, uh, a clay called monster clay, yeah. Uh, appropriately enough, um, but he'll he'll do his sculpture, and often you know there there are pieces of bone and stuff incorporated into that, and then he will make a uh, a rubber mold out of that, um, you know, it's a a negative essentially. Yeah. Um, and then he takes that mold and it's filled with uh, with wax, um, and the wax form is the wax is what is actually get, ends up getting cast into the bronze, and uh, fr- from there the uh, the wax uh, he then builds a wax sprue around it, just like you know if you're if you're at all familiar with miniatures wargaming, it's a, sort of a similar idea to you know how you how you cast a figure, um, and uh, this this sprue gets built around it uh, with wax, and that all gets um, encased in a uh, a big brick of uh, of plaster of Paris with a typically like a chicken wire frame to keep it together. And then he takes that to the foundry um, at Pratt Fine Arts, uh, which is a school here in Seattle. Um, they have a very large bronze foundry. Um, and then his piece and any of the other pieces in that, that set get buried in a sand pit uh, with just their, t- their tops exposed. And um, then uh, a very large, very hot crucible yeah. uh, is filled with molten bronze and uh, filled with those molds. And then the wax is, the, the wax is disintegrated by the, um, the molten bronze. Um, that's left to set for about a half an hour, and then they smash open the uh, the encasements. Um, and then what you've got at the end of that is you've got your your bronze statuary on the sprue. Um, and from there, um, uh, he takes it back and he, he cleans up the statue, cuts it off the sprue, grinds down the metal. He has a whole process for this, and then ultimately that that culminates in a uh, patina process where he applies acids and other chemicals and blow torches to give it the uh, the finished effects he wants. Um, yeah. And in fact. Uh, Tomorrow, which I guess will be probably after this this airs, but uh, tomorrow um, on uh, it'll be July 9th, uh, we're actually going to go to Pratt to uh, do some live streaming of his patina process. Oh, wicked! Okay, that's really yeah. Cool. So uh, I guess if you're if you're for you guys who are listening, who are, I'm talking to right now, if you're uh, if you're around, we'll be online from the Strix Publishing Facebook uh, live streaming that around 10 a.m. Pacific time. Um, but that video should be archived on the the Strix Facebook page. So if you can, if you miss it and you're listening to this now and you want to talk, you want to check it out later, um, you can watch it from there. Cool. That's I mean yeah that that's really quite interesting to um, hear about. It'd be really cool to yeah watch the the acid um, patina process. Um, yeah. In fact, if you if you watch, if you go to the <laughs> the Apocrypha Kickstarter, uh, which you can get at StrixPublishing.com/souls. S O L E S. Uh, the video actually has some uh, some footage of the patina process. So that's so the reason the the that's the that's going to give kind of various kind of like surface coloration, isn't it? To the yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, Excellent. that's that's really cool. Because um, I mean, purely from my background as a chemist, that's going to interest me. And then um, I think. I will actually try and link that to um, some of the guys in our, uh, some of the guys at work because obviously I work in a material science department and so oh yeah they'll get a kick out of that they'll get yeah they'll enjoy that and um, but they may be horrified by Jason's uh, safety practices but uh, um, yeah more than likely yeah. I mean, <laughs> we have interesting we have we have some like on one of the floors below me that they, they work with radioactive materials because they have to deal with <laughs> waste disposal and then another floor another floor does um, additive process so they um they use lasers on uh, metal powders and build up things i think mm-hmm. they made one of the minions using titanium in that process so they 3d printed in titanium oh, powder cool. <laughs> so yeah again seeing seeing like bronze processing and um and just that whole very you know more hands-on uh approach and uh it's going to be quite interesting to see so yeah of course we'll be taking quite... questions too so so clearly, then Jason's moved from uh, originally kind of like sculpting and traditional casting processes to 
far more like so and and working with actual actual bones and actual skulls or, or casting them in in similar similar kind of feeling materials i guess to now quite um complex metal working yeah relatively speaking complex metal working compared right. to previous um and that that kind of that that evolution of his way of working then features in the book and as you said there's 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 sections of the book that go in go into some detail then in in how he approaches that uh yeah um every chapter the book is divided into chapters um they deal with the different sort of areas of sculpture he's done um and he t- he talks about process and and you know his, his there's often some designs design notes and sketches and things like that that accompany them but uh, yeah it definitely provides sort of an overview of the the various mediums he works in because the book encapsulates Jason's work so far and you see the evolution of his of his art is there are there any techniques that Jason's spoken of that he wants to move into next that he or materials that, I, that he wants to I don't really know um I think at this time he's, he's pretty focused on refining his craft with uh, the bronze you know, he's he's only been doing yeah. that for about 2 years and he, he's he's doing Okay very well with it, but um, you know, it, it's one of those things that it's, it's, you know, it, it, you can spend a lifetime refining your, your craft with that. So I, I think he's pretty focused on, on the bronze work at the moment. Okay, cool. Um, so um, David, you've got some questions to bring up. Yes. So moving from his technique to some of the concepts behind um, the pieces, um, I noticed that a lot of the the um, examples that are given focus on anatomy and alien artifacts, and just wondered where some of these concepts came from? Um, you know, I, I think we, uh, we talk about this a little bit in, in the Kickstarter itself, um, but I, I think Jason's sort of fascinated with the idea of personal mythology, um, and I think he, he likes to view his work as sort of crypto-anthropology, um, sort of the idea of exploring or finding, of creating artifacts that suggest they could have been created by some some lost civilization hundreds of years ago with, you know, alien influences and, and things like that. So, uh, you know, I, um, he, he has these for a lot of the mask work he does. He made a mask just for the Kickstarter. It's one of the bronze pieces. Uh, it's actually, a, uh, there's two of them as rewards right now, but it's the, the Leviathan cross, uh, mask. And it, it's this sort of, um, very alien looking, but human based skull with horns and a, the Leviathan cross symbol from alchemy, uh, which has a number of other connotations, uh, inscribed in its forehead, um, or his cenotaph mask, which you know it, it looks like a it looks like a, a, a skull with sort of a, almost a gas mask built into it, um, and I, I think you know um, things like Geiger and Beksinski were big influences on him. But the idea of you know these things are they sort of he, he often refers to them as death as, as death masks for like you know alien gods. Um, you know I, I think um, he's sort of drawing on the idea of the, these these half hidden half understood. Um, Alien civilizations from the depths of history—they're you know only being uncovered today—and I, I think that's sort of the one of the the driving themes behind his work is that that crypto anthropology. Um, I actually wrote an article on uh, Ridley Scott's Prometheus in relation to Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness and this oh, yeah. idea of going back and and trying to discover um, a secret history of of how uh, human civilization developed. So. I get a sense that uh, it's not just in your own work and your own interests, but that maybe Lovecraft is an influence on, on Jason too. Oh, huge, hugely. You know, I, in fact, one of the rewards for the campaign is uh, Jason's interpretation of a Cthulhu statuette idol. Uh, yes, that's uh, from the short story, isn't it? Uh, the Call of Cthulhu. The Call of Cthulhu, yeah. Uh, he had done a different one uh, many years ago in plaster, which is quite cool. I actually, I actually have one of those myself. But um, this new one is a uh, resin cast, although he's, he casts six of them in bronze, which he'll also be patinating tomorrow. Um, mm. But uh, we have a bunch of them in resin. <clears throat> excuse me. We have a bunch of them in resin available as rewards, which are going pretty fast. Uh, I think there's only about uh, 25 or so left. Um I can see those but, uh, being really appealing to uh, uh, Cthulhu LARP groups, actually, as well as yeah, <laughs> they're, they're great artifact. You know, I think they're good for like you know if, if you're playing a tabletop game, they're great uh, props as well, um, or they just look good on your shelf. But yeah, I mean, if if you if you want the resin one in the Kickstarter, uh, you can get the the uh, resin Cthulhu uh, statuette plus a resin crow skull, which is actually quite cool, and the art book for $110, which is a, a very good value because you'd normally sell all of those for quite a bit more. Hmm. Absolutely. And so I know um, Jason's quite uh, a keen Cricks player, I believe. Um, I just wondered, um, are there any kind of crossover between his 
artwork, his sculpting, and some of the ideas that maybe have found their way into Crick's? Uh, yeah, I think almost certainly. Like I said, you know, we talked earlier about the Necromancer skull, which actually has Crixian thrall runes inscribed on it. I think he did that piece as sort of uh, so on the side concept art for the early days of Iron Kingdom's development. Um, although I actually think Crix was originally created um, almost solely by Matt Wilson, and when Jason came on, Crix was the, the groundwork of Crix had already been laid. But he's certainly done a lot of work on it since. Um, although I think these days he's primarily a Kador player. <laughs> ah. He's uh, moved on. Um, so, are there any other artists um, who are inspirations to uh, Jason's work? Um, you know, I don't want to put too many words into his mouth, but I think, you know, Geiger and Lovecraft, obviously, like we spoke about, but I, I think um, Jason's quite into um, Beksinski, if you're familiar with that painter. Um, I'm trying to trying to have a think of that. It rings a bell. He's a, he's a Polish Possibly. painter. He is kind yes, of, uh, I think he's the one now. Can you name some I, of I his... I won't... Keyword or describe the style. Uh, he does lots of um, it's oil painting stuff. He was self-taught as well. Um, lots of very macabre things. Lots of very weird landscapes. Um, you know, Titanic figures. Uh, weird soft lighting. Um, I am afraid to try and pronounce his his first name. Um, Zadislaw, maybe, maybe. But Beksinski uh, is his last name, and I, I feel <laughs> yeah, confident I, I just... saying that out loud. I just did a search on on, on Google Images just because it just to remind myself. And I, yeah, it's exactly the artist. So um, there's quite a, a lot of I would say describe a lot of his pieces. There's a a, a cyclopean kind of feeling to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in that respect, it's kind of oppressive. There's a, it's kind of like if you if you let Geiger and um, Dali in some respects for some pieces be mixed together because some pieces are very um, surreal in that nature mm -hmm. uh, and also um, looking at the pieces there's a lot of uh, trying to emulate kind of organic form and all organic forms but organic textures I would say yeah makes sense in there so um, you know it's it's really great great artwork like if you needed any inspiration for any any horror RPG that you're running um, it's um it's brilliant. So I can see how that features heavily in Jason's kind of uh, yeah, and links to shadows, you think? inspirations. And uh, I should point oh definitely. Uh, I should also mention uh, one of Jason's longtime collaborators, who uh, A.S. Coy. Coy's uh, a sculptor and painter, uh, primarily a painter. She also does some writing. Coy's uh, a very very talented artist. Um, they they work together as a as Catalyst Studios for a number of years and. Um, some of Koi's uh, concept art was used by Jason for various sculptures, and that's also included in the Apocrypha art book. Excellent. So, um, when did it re really become obvious to... Do you, when do you think that it became really a true idea, uh, you know, a fully realized idea for Jason and, and for yourself, actually, I guess, is, because this would have been, you know, banded around that. You know, this all this work needed to be collated into an art book. It, was, it, was it something that Jason's always wanted to do, or was it just did it? When did it feel the right time to do so? Um, he's or wanted to do an art book for quite some time, um, and I, he he had sort of put a a a big skeleton of one together um, a year or two ago. Um, so when we were talking, I was like, you know, maybe we can do an art book, and he was like, well, I've already got pieces of it, and um, especially ever since he started working in bronze, he wanted he's really been documenting a lot of his processes okay. and, and the experiences with that, and. Uh, uh, it, the book is very much tied into the, these these rewards he's made for the Kickstarter. These, these a lot of these bronze pieces, um, because the uh, you know the, the work in the the work of doing those is often documented in the book itself, and you know that, that's part of what we're we're putting together at this time too. Um, so it, it, it's it's very much sort of a, a journal in some ways of the last you know eighteen months or so of his career. Yeah. So it's not it like so that I think that's quite important that it's. It's not just a collection of pretty pictures of things he's made. It's as you say, it's it's a it's a journal of learning that art and expressing it and showing how that te that technique in practice. Absolutely. That's I think that's really really good. I mean that's why I guess knowing that I'm 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 ever more keen on getting hold of a copy to to look at that because um, again it's. Uh, It'd be really interesting to just to read about that process. Um, yeah, I think I, I hope it's going to be interesting. I think it is. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, I think we've looking at some of our questions. I um, I think there's um, 
I think we've covered some of these. Um, there is one. Do you think there's? Is there a particular piece that, for yourself, um, seeing it, you know, made and fashioned, that you've you've thought that's blown you away the most? And then, is there a piece that you think that Jason has seen the most satisfied with seeing it, you know, cast and and created? Um, I think it's kind of uh, twofold on that. You know, it's uh, for me personally. Um, Watching him work on the Leviathan cross masks and bronze has been because I, I've been documenting quite a bit of it for the book and the Kickstarter, um, so I, I've been present at a lot of his bronze pours and um, you know studio time with that. So I, it, it's just it's just, it's such an impressive piece, and you know when you see it, um, you know in the round especially, which is going to be cool. We'll have some video footage of that this weekend. You know it, it's it's just this massive beautiful slab of metal, and it's, it's he's you know, he's been he's been doing he's been working the metal for the last couple of days in preparation for the patina. It's just it's just extremely. Uh, um, cool and and uh, I I love it. I wish I could I could afford one for myself, but they're both up for the Kickstarter backers. Uh, but I, I think I think this latest rounds of bronze work has been very satisfying for him because he's been a lot of the things that you know a lot of the the troubles you normally run into during the the bronze process he's kind of overcome this time and you know he keeps being sort of surprised that you know things are going more smoothly than he expected and it's, you know it's just because he's you know he's perfecting his craft and um, you know it, it's he's becoming more and more skilled at uh, at the process. Um, so I, I think you know the, the the two bronze pieces, well, there's really eight bronze pieces we have for the, the Kickstarter, which is uh, the, the six bronze Cthulhu's and the um, the Leviathan cross masks. Probably he would say he's most satisfied with those as well. Um, mm-hmm. They're just they're just very beautiful pieces, and you know we also have them available as uh, as resin copies at lower price points as well in in the rewards because not everybody can afford you know three hundred dollars or sixteen hundred dollars for the, the high end bronze pieces. Yeah. Um, although Jason does sell those on a fairly regular basis uh, through his Etsy shop. So. <laughs> So it sounds as though they're, they're quite impressive um, artifacts to be in the presence of. Um, does he do any exhibitions at all? Yeah, he gets shown in galleries on a pretty regular basis. Um, Jason's got he's been he's been gallery shown for a number of years now. Um, I think internationally at this point, um, his agent is uh, very good at uh, at promotion and so forth. So um, you know he's shown in galleries in New York. I don't have a gallery list in front of me, but uh, he he's in in. Group and solo shows uh, pretty regularly, several times a year. I could see his work being shown alongside someone like Clive Barker. I don't know if you've seen his art. Oh, absolutely, but, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, oh, I should also mention we we have a little promotion going on right now. Uh, while Jason was doing some metalworking uh, earlier in the week, he also did a one-off cast of the Cthulhu statuette um, in what's called Cold Cast um, Marble. And uh, what that is is it's a re- it's a polyurethane resin used for casting. Um, but it's ma- he mixes into it uh, finely ground marble powder, um, and the final product you end up with what essentially looks like a white marble statue. Um, it's it's you know it's it's got that kind of heft and that that smooth luster to it. It's a it's a very beautiful statue, um, and it's the only one he's going to be making in that material. Um, but we have put it up in the Kickstarter, and when we reach 200 backers, which we are at 99 as I'm speaking of this, so we're halfway there. Uh, but at 200 backers, we are going to uh, select one of our backers at the $45 level or higher and throw it in with the rest of the rewards for free. So, <laughs> wow, <laughs> that that's pretty great. Yeah, you can see pictures of that uh, in the in update number three on the Kickstarter. That's how stretch okay. goals should be done. Mm. Um, so getting back to strict publishing, then, um, yeah, what's been some of the most challenging aspects of getting Strix Publishing going, and what, I guess what kind of things have you learned from doing Kickstarters? Because I mean, the type of Kickstarters you're running now differ to the very huge scale that Widower's Woods was, and the huge scale that you know um, War Machine Tactics is. So that you you've experienced very different volumes of de- volumes of oh, backers, yeah. volumes of money, but also. Um, there must be different things you've learned and experienced and just gone, I ain't doing that one again, or that was great, but this is how we're improving on it on this iteration. Um, I mean, it's it's always a learning process, and uh, you know, part of it is is Kickstarters um, work differently in different categories. Like the the expectations from the audiences are very different for an art book than they are for, say, a uh, large Ameritrash style board game. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it, when you're when you're dealing with a large, with a large board game, you're generally you expect you're going to fund, and then in the first two or three days at most, usually the first day if you have a good marketing campaign behind it, um, and then 
the challenge is that you know is having planned your stretch goals uh, in a way that's going to satisfy your backers because there are, there are a lot of expectations for what a board game on Kickstarter is going to do and how it's going to be structured. Um, so it's it's less a question of you know are we going to fund or how do we meet our funding goal and more you know how do we exceed our funding goal by a you know five six hundred percent and meet the expectations of the backers without going bankrupt ourselves in the process, which is you know a thing that is uh, still more common than it probably should be for uh, yes. a lot of a lot of large board game Kickstarters. I think it's it's easy to get uh, you know eyes that are bigger than your stomach when you're planning those things and um, you know you see tremendous delays on on a lot of products because of that. Um, so, you know, doing the, the smaller publishing stuff, it's more a question of, you know, making sure you're actually connecting to your audience and finding your audience because it's, it's you know, you, you've got to reach out to them and, you you know, you don't have the massive brand behind you that, say, Privateer Press does. You know, Privateer is probably one of the three or four biggest companies in the tabletop gaming industry. Um, so, you know, you're, you're, you're assured of getting your, your, your campaign in front of a lot of eyes, but, you know, doing something like Apocrypha or Problem Glyphs or... The Book of Starry Wisdom. It's it's you're doing it with a more niche product, and you have to you have to find your backers. Um, but the you know the thing that the thing that's common I think across all across all Kickstarters is that your success is absolutely determined by what you're who you're who you're bringing to your campaign on your first day. What kind of, what kind of pre-campaign you can do to make people aware and get eyes on the project in advance, just so that people show up ready to to pledge on day one. Mm. You know if if you if you don't get that 25 30 percent in the first 72 hours, uh, you may be in trouble. Um, you know, you've got to establish that base and then then grow that from there. Um, so that, that that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned with the Kickstarters in general. But you know, as far as running Strix, you know, uh, it's my first time, you know, as a publisher on my own. You know, I've, I've been working with Privateer for many years, and I was involved with, with Unhallowed uh, Metropolis. Um, so you know, I've I've been I've observed and you know been aware of a lot of publishing stuff. And um, you know, I, I think the the made over the years through that is let me put together a, a, a team of freelance staffers uh, essentially who uh, you know are all very talented experts in their fields as far as editorial or book layout or graphic design um, you know I should I should give a shout out to uh, uh, my friend Ifienia who uh, who uh, she uh, is actually a recording artist uh, as one of her, her main jobs she goes by foie gras she was actually just on tour in Europe with uh, with King Dude, but she's my graphic designer for uh, campaign stuff for Apocrypha, and she's she's doing a fantastic job on that. Um, you know, she she designed her book cover and all of the the design assets you might see on the Kickstarter. But you know, being able to have this team of people who really know what they're doing, um, you know, and are consummate professionals, um, has you know basically saved me in many, many ways and more ways than I can think of. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, my role is almost as like you know the producer on a film, where you know I I I, I put the overall project together and then I, I delegate the responsibilities to people who have the specific skill sets I need, um, you know, pay them for their time and, you know, kind of just organize everything and, and do my best to to make sure they're getting the information that they need, you know, and that uh, everybody's staying on deadlines and kind of taking it from there, if that makes any sense. Hmm. Do you think um, starting a publishing company now is... is maybe, I don't know whether it's say easier, but I mean, we've had a lot of change in both role-play game publishing and, and book publishing in general because we've got, uh, you know, obviously you've got Amazon and that's obviously impacted on bricks and mortar kind of bookstores. And then of course you've got digital books and how that then also impacts on physical books. Does that mean, do you feel that coming in after all those things have happened means it's easier to focus on exactly what you're delivering which is this niche product which is a, a high quality product that it, people are paying for paying for a physical item knowing that it's going to be a very high quality uh, physical item and you're trying to get that to knowing that you're trying to capture what is a small audience versus, you know, back in the day when maybe publishers were scrambling to, to try and change from delivering to a huge audience and then trying to accommodate the fact they had to change their, their practices to, to deal with what is now a smaller audience. Do you think that, you know, coming in after all those changes is, has made life easier? I mean, you will, cause I mean, as part of being part of uh, private press, you, you know, you, mostly have witnessed some of these changes as they've occurred, you know, like the rise of drive-through RPG and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I would say ask me in a year. 
But, okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think coming in right now, the dust is starting to settle on a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the sort of advent of the digital age for publishing. Um, you know, one of the interesting things, I think this is the first year, maybe the second year, where they're seeing that uh, digital book sales are actually declining and physical sales are, are rising again. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of the... Uh, the excitement around 2006, 2007 that, you know, e-books were going to, to destroy physical books entirely has turned out to be, uh, you know, nonsense. Um, not that digital books aren't doing extremely well, but people are, you know, I, I think people are still buying physical books more than anything else, even if they're not necessarily doing it in their neighborhood bookstore, which is, you know, sort of a, a sad and uh, dying institution um, because of the, the you know, um, benefits of fast delivery from Amazon or, who, or what have you. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think it's, because of the internet, um, it's easier to reach your niche audience these days. So if you're if you're if you're if you have if you have a very specific product, um, if you can find your market, or it's easier to find your market than it's ever been before, right? Because like, if you're a small press publisher, uh, I mean, and I don't want to speak from a position of authority because I've been doing this for a very short period of time, uh, but in my limited experience, you know, if if you can find if if you're if you're willing to put the work and you can find the audience for just about anything. Um, and you know, if you have a good quality product, um, people are going to respond to that. And you know, I, th I think one of the you sort of touched on this before. One of the one of the key points behind uh, founding Strix was that I, I wanted to create books as artifacts. I wanted to, have to sell high quality luxury editions of books, essentially that are you know um, fun to read in and of themselves. But you know, there, there's a full experience between having the book in your hand and you know maybe having a piece of sculpture that goes with the book, right? Like, you know, that's that's why we have these sculptures mm. in Jason's book, because you can own a piece of the artwork with the book that displays the artwork. And I, I think that kind of immersive experience is a lot of fun. Um, you know, or, for example, the um, Book of Starry Wisdom I did in the fall, which is this, you know, meant to be this very immersive collection of Lovecraft's Cthulhu stories, specifically Cthulhu, which is Dagon, the Call of Cthulhu, and the Shadow Over Innsmouth, um, with illustrations and stuff. But, you know, that, that, that edition is it's being... Uh, bound in a, a faux leather, a green leather that I, I chose to have kind of a, a fish scale feel to it. And you know, the idea is, I wanted it to look and feel like the kind of you know nightmarish tome that Lovecraft describes. So I want to, I want to give people um, a really full experience when they're reading the book that you know you can't get simply through a digital version. Um, and I do sell digital versions, right? Like every book has an ebook edition because you know, um, in some cases, uh, people. Uh, don't have room for physical books, or you know, uh, international shipping is pretty brutal these days. Um, so you yeah. know, if people, if people really want to have the copy of the book or contribute to the project, you know, I, I, I certainly offer the ebook editions. But their ebooks are definitely a, a secondary thought to the process. Um, you know, I think ebooks are great, um, and they, they certainly uh, have their role. Um, and I don't, I don't disparage anybody who who prefers to read an ebook or exclusively reads ebooks. Um, but I'm interested in you know, book as artifact as as experience. Yeah, I I think I think ebook as experience will mostly occur once we're into once there is some better format because the, I think the idea of in, you know PDFs again for RPGs be more uh, the ebooks be more interactive and having embedded media within those books will mostly make will be the next generation of ebooks we'll see but we're we're clearly not there yet. Yeah, not uh, yet. Because PDFs is PDFs is really a well, it's not the greatest format in the world. It has its it's it's great for being just a copy of text, but it's right. just that. Um, and what that means then for an art book like this, I don't know how how well that means for the balance of the quality of the the photography versus the fact that the this ebook has to be so big and actually load on a on a on a on a on a tablet because the bigger the images are it's going to blow up the size and only so much can be stored in memory when you're reading it yeah, on your tablet absolutely um we'll see i guess <laughs> yeah yeah we are sure. we are definitely or this will be an ebook version of apocrypha um i suspect the ebook version will probably be just a pdf because i, I don't yeah. think I don't think the material lends itself at all to be to be you know read on a Kindle or whatever. Um, no, Story no, Wisdom no. will be available in all the the, the common ebook formats like Kindle for Kindle and um, what have you. But uh, yeah. I think the, the the pure art books like Apocrypha are probably their digital editions are just going to be PDFs.
Um, so, David, I think we're on to the next little Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this one. So, <clears throat> in June of this year, an announcement was made on Facebook that the near-Victorian post-apocalyptic RPG on Hallowed Metropolis uh, is returning via Strix Publishing. I just wondered if you can tell us about uh, what attracted you to Unhallowed Metropolis in the first place? Well, uh, Unhallowed, I've been working with Jason Unhallowed for many years now. Um, I actually, I first met Jason at Gen Con in 2007, where we got to talking, and that was, I guess that was the Gen Con that it, the first edition released. Um, and uh, I ended up working at Privateer about a year later, and then just asked if I was interested in contributing, and I've been contributing to Unhallowed probably since late 2008 or so. Um, so when uh, when I left Privateer to start my own publishing company, um, it was sort of a no-brainer to maybe bring Unhallowed back. You know, the revised edition came out a few years ago, um, got a good critical acclaim on that. Um, we didn't quite get the marketing push behind it we wanted for for a few factors, um, really for nobody's fault. It was just one of those uh, bad timing things. And one of the problems we always had with Unhallowed was that the the two principal creators, uh, Jason Souls and Nicole Vega, um, are extraordinarily busy people. Um, yeah. You know, uh, Jason's the lead developer of Privateer Press, which also means making a role-playing game on the side is a, a minor conflict of interest for him. Um, mm. <clears throat> Privateer's always been very cruel about it, but you know, it's it takes up a lot of his time, and um, it's certainly you know a potential problem. And uh, Nicole, the other co-creator, um, at the time that the work was being done, early days on Unhallowed, uh, she was a PhD candidate. Um, in fact, and now she is a a PhD. <laughs> um, she uh, she works in. I want to say uh, molecular biology, but I, she, she works in some extremely uh, intense, high-end academic field um, where I assume she's making some sort of horrible mutant fish babies in, in test tubes or something, but um, <laughs> she probably wouldn't correct me on that either. Um, she does actual but, uh, science in a lab, whereas I sit yeah, in front yeah. of a computer and do simulations. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, <clears throat> For those who haven't played Unhallowed Metropolis and, and don't know too much about it, what um, what distinguishes it? What are the, some of the key experiences that you would get through playing Unhallowed Metropolis? Well, our, our tagline for Unhallowed is the gas mask chic uh, role-playing game of neo-Victorian horror. And uh, it's kind of a, it's set in an alternate future um, where uh, a zombie plague uh, devastated the world in 1905, and the game is set 200 years later. Um, in the Neo-Victorian Empire. And uh, so it's sort of mad science, uh, zombie survival, and Victorian Gothic horror all, all rolled up into one uh, extremely gory basket. Um, and, uh, you know, it, the, it's one of those things where, like, the characters have a lot of, uh, tend to have enough terrible personality flaws that it's difficult to see who's actually the villains or the, the heroes of the game. Um and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's been around for quite a while now. I guess we'll be coming up on 10 years next year, which is sort of a weird thing to realize. Hmm. So, bringing it back, um, can you give us some hints about what we can expect from a new edition? So, I don't want to talk too much about it, because I'm still in the, the very early stages of planning. Um, okay. But we're going to have much bigger announcements um, in spring of next year, 2017, um, and then a big a, a project launch in uh, probably July of 2017, although please don't hold me to dates just yet. <laughs> yeah. In the works. But yeah, we're going to be doing, uh, strictly producing an all-new, uh, complete second edition, true second edition of Unhallowed Metropolis, which will be a ground-up rework if you... If you're already familiar, and you may have seen the revised edition, the revised edition had a lot of new art, and it had, you know, basically a major rules errata to the first edition rules. Um, and but it, it was it was largely a, a refinement of the first edition. Um, you know, we we reused a lot of this, of the original text um, and a fair amount of the art. Um, but the the new edition will be a complete ground up rework, new rules, new art, new writing. Um, new everything. Um, I have some pretty ambitious plans to go alongside with it, which I don't want to say out loud and be quoted on just yet. <laughs> but uh, hopefully we're going to provide a, a very um, fulfilling and immersive uh, experience across a couple of media types for Unhallowed uh, starting in 2017. And so might I think I totally dodged all of your... A Kickstarter, possibly? <laughs> I would say that a Kickstarter for Unhallowed Metropolis in 2017 is pretty likely, yeah. Okay, one to watch. Yeah, um, I think things that that always stood out with Unhallowed Metropolis was it used a great mix of um, like it has the artwork of Samuel Aria who works he does yeah. a lot of artwork for Chronicles of Darkness books uh, for an extremely talented artist. 
Yeah, because uh, he's got that kind of he. I mean, we've interviewed him in the past, and you know, one of his main inspirations is like uh, Christopher Shy, who did a lot of the uh, mm-hmm. work on um, the character pieces for Mage: The Ascension. So, yeah, it's that kind of mixture between photography, very kind of weird photorealist surreal horror, um, and then of course you in Unhallowed Metropolis, there's a lot of um, actual photography, you know, of uh, various people dressed up in appropriate attire to represent you know vampires or zombie hunters or uh the um morticians um all all those uh interesting characters um i think one of the cool things about unhealthy metropolis is um having run it uh, a number of times is i think th- at least with the current the current version that is obviously available uh, on P- you know available digitally i think um Rules-wise, it it's not too. I think it's it's, it's a D, it's like a D10 type system. Take this stat, add that stat. That's your difficulty. But, I mean, the, but the main thing was the corruption system, which is kind yeah. of a way of. So you you have I think there's three different forms of way of being corrupted. It's like physically, mentally, and by your your passion. And there's different mm-hmm. flavors of corruption in each of those strands, and. You can use, you can progress down. You you get a number of rerolls for for the degrees of corruption you have in each of those strands. Or if you're going to die and you want to cheat death, you can you can um, willingly uh, increase your corruption in one of those strands by a further by a further level. And you know you make a deal with the devil and you you escape. Uh, you don't get your head ripped off by an alchemical aberration, <laughs> but of course it means you're now more of a more of a weird psychopath, or you're even more becoming more um, malformed, or, yeah. or you've got weirder. You know, you're 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 more aloof and cold. I think one of the guys, uh, James, who we podcast with often when he was playing, I think his character got. Got to the point where he was playing like a doctor was carrying around a head in his satchel for some odd reason. Yeah, that sounds um, about right. Um, uh, I think this is I, the most interesting thing about post-apocalyptic settings: that idea that to survive in a mad world, you have to give in to some extent. Um, you know, things like The Walking Dead, um, yeah. Dark Age, which is a, a game I'm, I'm I'm getting into at the moment. I, being trapped in that kind of scenario for that amount of time, um, morality gets warped and shifted and things that might seem completely abhorrent uh, pre-apocalypse become normalised in some way. So I think that that notion of a corruption track and um, as you progress, you're likely to become more and more corrupted. I think it's a really interesting mechanic. It's a really... The other things I like about it, I think this this is... Um, is that while it's a zombie horror game as well, is that it, it doesn't... It, the, the horror doesn't work if you make zombies pop up. <laughs> you know, ninjas attack. No, zombies attacking randomly Great. all the time really doesn't work. I mean, it, they're the the background, they're the the backdrop. They're the the they give the feeling of like you don't know when someone will fall ill and and be a, a be a shambler suddenly, and that happens. And but you need to kind of build that tension. You can't just throw zombies at someone constantly and just yeah. run through. Um, in the past we've always sort of we've we've talked about the zombies in a hell of metropolis as, as you know if if you're if you're game mastering the game um, in the way we we imagine it, you use the zombies almost like the weather, right? They're they're a force yeah, of yeah. nature that's that's sort of <laughs> omnipresent um, you know, but its intensity varies and you know hopefully for good dramatic effect. And that idea that the at any point there could be that kind of silent hill, you know air raid siren that sounds because mm-hmm. the area of London that you're in is about to be locked down because the um, the death watch are going to clear the area out because there is a, a zombie outbreak. Right, and by that you mean literally kill everybody in the streets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you have to race to get out the gate before you get locked in. Um, I've done that, and it's really good fun. Um, <laughs> I've pulled that on the players. But also, I think... The reason why I like it is, as a game, is if you play, if you play at least the way I run them, anyway, um, a lot of Chronicles of Darkness games as very, um, you try to keep a serious tone and there's a bit of dark humor in there, but you're playing it like a, a procedural investigation. Yeah, sure. Uh, into what kind of thing is going on, 
or you're trying to look at like how you um, if you're playing werewolf you're trying to like set up your your territory and deal with the things there um, a lot of the tension and a lot of the conflict that's going to be in in unhallowed metropolis i would say generally i would say about 50 percent of the time is going to be other people and all the other stuff is where you you finally get the story to its conclusion and aha it's like someone is creating some some alchemical kind of Promethean type creature or they've mm-hmm. cloned someone or they have been collecting the dead and created some homunculus kind of creature right. or it is vampires or if you've got ghosts as well there's necropolis for that um, yeah I can say that the, in the where, oh, sorry go on I was going to say where it compares to Chronicles of Darkness is I think it does very well is it's a bit more tongue-in-cheek because of the corruption, because it's quite fun to play to the corruption. Oh, yeah. And it's a bit more, and it's a bit more tongue-in-cheek because there's a high amount of splatterpunk theme to it. So I do... You can play it as a very serious game, but when, when the shit hits the pan, all the heads start rolling, it can be quite hilarious in a very, very dark way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, mean, I, I think, you know, um, 2000 AD was probably a, a fairly heavy influence <laughs> yeah. on, on, the, on the early writing. Um, you know, the game's kind of got a lot of that, that, that British black humor built into it. Um, you know, I've, t- I've, tonally, it reminds me a little of SLA Industries. Uh, that, that, yes, that's, that's definitely. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely an influence. Jason um, and uh, Jefferson, who's our layout guy, um, they're both tremendous uh, Slay Industry fans. So uh, it, it, it's, it's in the DNA there for sure. And the other thing which I really, um, uh, what was I going to say just then? The other thing that I really like about the game is it, you can you can re- you, you can run it really quite seriously. And there's different types of way of running the game, which I think um, it'll be interesting to see expanding upon in future. Is kind of like the more kind of career paths and 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 combining them because it's as a setting goes, we've not, I think with the two books, it's mainly focused on London, but it does hint at other parts of the world. Like I'm really, cause I'm obviously a complete Venice nerd. I uh-huh. really want to have a look at what Venice is like in this world, because I think that's yeah. where, it's where the Vatican goes. Oh, sh- you know, shit. Like let's, the safest place to be is on an island. What right. island do you have? <laughs> yeah, it would, it would, you know, I think we, we touched on it a little bit as part of the papal states. Um, yeah, yeah. In Hallow, but yeah, I, I think um, the second edition thing, I can say that the uh, whatever the the final shape of things, uh, the core book is almost certainly going to combine the material of Metropolis and Necropolis. Yeah. Um, because I I, 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 I I'd rather have a single core book that you know people can buy and, and get the whole game out of because. Um, I think the books were originally sort of split up for production reasons, but I think we can find ways around that this time, and hopefully we'll get all of that material in, in one good starting place. Um, so, so what was Necropolis? I, I've, I've not come across uh, so that. Ne- so Necropolis introduced rules for ghosts and character types dealing with that, and I I think I need to buy the physical copy, because in my local one of my local gaming stores, it sat there, and I was really surprised it's there, so it's like I need to have the spare cash huh. and grab it. Um so yeah, ghosts in all their forms. Ghosts and psychics. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and, Sounds and very good. The other thing I, I think that's really good about it, and I guess this this lends back to it goes back to um, uh, the artistic talent in there, is that large parts of those books are also given over to kind of in-game artifacts, so the like you know mm-hmm. description, like you know uh, anatomy kind of. Um, uh, di- uh, anatomical diagrams of like zombies or of other creatures or discussions of what is the zombie plague because the zombie plague is a is this weird science supernatural mishmash thing and it's not you don't just have to be bitten to come back as a zombie you can just die and then you will eventually come back yeah there's um, a chance you <clears throat> there's a chance anybody could uh, could rise it's no it's 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 untapped, and I think yeah, with the rise of Kickstarter and stuff, it's maybe um, it'd be great. It is going to be great to see it come back and and re-explore that world and explore more of it. Um, yeah, I've, I've got some I've got some big plans for it. And I, you know, I will certainly come back and talk to you more when I when I have more concrete things to say. Yeah, uh, sure. I was going to say I'd, I'd really like to pick your brains when you uh, at liberty to. Yeah, I'm <clears throat> I'm I'm dying to talk about it right now, but it's just, <laughs> it, it, we've got some really cool plans. But it, it's just it's it's not said enough for me to, to start shooting my mouth off about all the things I yeah. want to happen because a lot can happen between you know what you want to happen and what actually happens but 
we've got some we've definitely got some big plans. Excellent. Cool. Um, so, are there any other kind of what the what uh, you may have mentioned? So, what other uh, Kickstarters or, or projects have you got lined up after uh, Apocrypha? <clears throat> Then, uh, what are the next ones? So uh, the next, the only two, the two remaining that are planned for this year uh, will be in August. Will be a uh, hardcover uh, deluxe reprint edition of Oren Gray's Never Bet the Devil, which is a collection yeah. of uh, very cool horror shorts. Uh, Oren's a great guy. He's written for uh, I think for Skull Island Expeditions with Privateer, um, and he's a fairly well-renowned horror writer and blogger um, in his own right. So uh, we're going to bring his first anthology back, illustrated by Mike Corley. Um, I'll probably start showing some stuff off from that in the next couple of weeks. That'll be mid-August around there, probably shortly after Gen Con is when I'll launch that Kickstarter. Um, and then the last Kickstarter for the year will be a companion volume to the Book of Starry Wisdom, uh, and that is going to be another Lovecraft anthology. This time it's going to focus on uh, Lovecraft stories, The Dunwich Horror, Dreams in the Witch House, um, and uh, one more story, which I am just narrowing down right now. I, I think I know what it's going to be, but I don't want to promise just yet, but uh, that's going to launch in early uh, early October, um, and that will be another fully illustrated uh, Lovecraft edition with uh, accompanying uh, essays in a hardcover format. It's going to look really cool with your collection of forbidden tomes. Great, and I know quite a few people will be interested in that. I hope so. <laughs> and then, of course, as I said, there's plans are not in place, but you know, you know, Unhallowed Metropolis is there on the the horizon, um, moaning the, 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 away, waiting to it, come It's over. coming closer. Yeah. Um, so, are there kind of, are there some ideas for projects? Or is there a project you would love to, to tackle if all the things were in the right place? Um, there is an idea I'm in the extraordinarily early stages of talking about, um, to the point where, like, I don't even want to say that much about it, but there's, there's, <laughs> a, there's sort of this transmedia project I have. Uh, right, okay. That would be sort of um, it would be a book and an artifact and maybe a little bit of a, 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 a small portion of it would have a, a video element to it. Right. Um, and I, I can't... I, I shouldn't talk too much about yeah, it right sure. now. But uh, it, that, it's probably a few years out, but I think if we can if we can figure it all out, it's going to be a very cool um, experience that somebody would, would get to have uh, while, you know, um, taking part. Well, when they, not, they wouldn't just be buying a product. They'd, they'd be having... Um, playing a part in sort of a... Uh, a larger experience. Okay. With that's a, with quite, a serious horror yeah. theme. Yeah, okay. So I guess that's quite interesting because, like, I don't know really, I'm trying to really think about it, like, whether the industry in total has really nailed or, or what the best version of, tra or, or what transmedia actually even is still. I think that's that's a term that's been around for a while. I know... I know White Wolf and Onyx Path have always kind of talked about it, but I'm not too sure whether it's it's. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a very broad term, and it. Yeah. You know, I didn't sit down and say I want to do a transmedia project. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I was I was talking with a potential collaborator who who brought the, the initial seed idea to me. Um, we, we were we were talking it over, and you know the, the only way to describe this idea we have is transmedia. But we didn't sit down and go, like we want to make a transmedia intellectual property franchise, right? Like we just we had this idea that would be this this sort of weird experience that people could. Um, purchase an item and, and take part in. Um, I kind of think that that hits on um, maybe one of the reasons why there haven't been that many successes because I think if someone starts with the idea of a, a kind of marketing campaign or unique uh, selling point um, for a project it can sometimes feel contrived so if it emerges organically that might make it more uh, coherent, appealing so mm. I think that's the sounds, hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like like I said, I only use the word transmedia because there there isn't really another word to to describe this this experiential product, I guess. Cool. Okay. Um, I think that that covers that covers everything that I had written down. Are there any last questions, David, that you have? Uh, none that you can answer the questions. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well. I'll come back and talk with you guys in the spring, probably. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah that would be great. Yeah. Um, so, is there any last things you want to plug then, Simon? Obviously, we'll provide links to all the Kickstarter stuff. I will edit this up as soon as possible, and it will be out there. So, hopefully, people will listen to this before the Kickstarter's even finished, so they can... We've know, got 20 finish. days to go, so... Exactly. There's still plenty of time. That's loads of time in the, in the Kickstarter world. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Um, <clears throat> so is there anything else you wanted to to plug or or link people or that people should no find? I I would just say you know if you're uh, if uh, apocrypha or these our sculptures sound cool I hope you'll check them out if you're already backing us thank you so much excellent and Strix Publishing obviously already has now has an active website which is yeah slowly Strix. getting things added as you have products to deliver um, right. Um, so our Facebook and Twitter are probably the best ways to stay in touch with us, though. Exactly. Okay. Um. So I think that covers. That is. That is everything. And that's. Uh. That's been for once a very short podcast for darker days. We normally yeah. go on for hours. Um. Great. Um. So finally, Simon, thank you for um taking the time out of the Kickstarter and doing the um just coming on and talking to us about this. And, oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, and yeah, that's everything. So cheers. Cheers, guys. Thanks so much. Good All luck right. with it.